everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 177, Hojoki. On today's episode, we read and discuss the essay Hojoki, or An Account of My Hut, written in the 13th century by the Japanese poet and essayist Kamo no Shomei about his time living in a 10-foot by 10-foot hut in the mountains. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! Hi. Hey. Wow, I, I gotta say our tagline is sounding ever more apocalyptic as <laughs> oh, God, we that's proceed. The last book club you'll ever need. Now it's the last, the last one you'll ever, ever have. have. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and and the idea that we decided to uh, read a book about someone living by themselves alone in a 10-foot hut surrounded by nothing, that seems a little close to home. Yeah. <laughs> that was the point, <laughs> You know, the thing that the pandemic has sapped from me is subtext. <laughs> that's funny. Everything... Maybe that's why Middlemarch was so perfect. Yeah, yeah. Everything... brought it all to the surface. Everything is just top text for me. I'm oh, angry man. and I'm angry at you. Not because of my mother. I'm literally so, angry at you. <laughs> I feel like, uh, was our last episode the end of Middlemarch? It's been a while. Yep. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So since it's it's been mentioned, I did want to raise something I told you guys in email, which is when I was reading Middlemarch. Of course, for me it was a reread, so I was like, "Oh, this is fun. This is interesting," and I was in a very intellectual space about it. And then once we were done, I was like bereft for days. I I felt lost. Oh. I felt like it was the purpose of my pandemic, which I didn't really realize. Like every day when I had free time, I'd be like, "Well, I guess I gotta." Guess I gotta go read Middlemarch now. Um, and it took me several days to regain that sense of purpose. So I'm yeah, sad. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely found it hard because I realized that I I live my life finding time to read. Mm -hmm. And like, I've now, I just, you have to make time to read. Uh, you know, because otherwise there's nothing... There, there's no reason reading is, is like where my brain is gravitating towards. Like if I have a free moment away from my child, away from my family, it's like I'm just brain dead. And it's just Twitter <laughs> scrolling, brain dead, rage tweeting. Uh, or like, you know, Rick and Morty nonsense, like turn my brain off kind of. I can't. Um, yeah, the thought of like, you know, but but if I make the time to read uh, within t five minutes, I feel better. Yes, yeah. you know it's like exercise, mm -hmm. but it's not one of those things that I I never really had to put that much effort into reading. It was one of those things that just happened, or I'd find time for. And in the and during this quarantine, I'm I'm really having to make time for it, and it's it's working. I'm getting through well, it. But. You know what you can do, Julia, is if you want, you mm -hmm. can just surround yourself with as much furniture as you can possibly <laughs> shove into one room. I can't afford that. Well, just like move just everyone's move all furniture, furniture <laughs> that you have into one room and then have conversations of an existential variety about the nature of love and madness while, while wearing walking, a corset. While wearing a corset <laughs> and having having the fever sweats. This is a hard no out, all around. While figuring out whether or not your your aged 35-year-old husband was, the right, gonna die was the right man for you to marry. As you... As well, you, walk around. you know, I'm doing fine now. 
because I decided instead to, and I, I completely understand these kinds of things are arbitrary and stupid, but clearly I need some kind of <laughs> meaning in my life. I decided to motor through and finish my entire Goodreads goal of number of books for the year as fast as I can. So I'm doing great. I've read like six or seven books since we uh, finished Middle March. Oh my gosh. Wow. Good for you. That's awesome. Because they're all pretty short. And then I, I may have mentioned this before. This is one perpetual Groundhog's Day. So forgive me if I said this last time we talked. My biggest parenting hack of the entire quarantine is audiobooks. Whenever I don't want to hear my stupid kid talk anymore. I just <laughs> <laughs> listen to a book. Which, by the way, hearing you say, if I don't want to hear my stupid, is the, that that is the least Julia said. Uh, but to it's show, the best. Julia it's the best to hear right now. Yeah, I am with her all the it time. Shows how much quarantine has changed. Yeah, all. I mean, I oh. well, here's a conversation she and I had today. Like she's playing quietly, and I was just like overcome with love, and I was like, Vega. I love you so much. And she goes, Mama, I love you so much. And I will watch one movie now. <laughs> she's a negotiator. She knows when to take advantage yep. of whatever, whatever rope you're going to give her. She's going to grab it. <laughs> That's awesome. So oh, anyway, God. I've listened to some great audiobooks. I mean... I'm joking, sort of, but it does. It's like the only thing that can shut your own mind up. So, yeah, I, I love Very audiobooks useful. for a reason. Can I just tell you, I read a, one of the best books of the year, and we aren't going to talk about it on the show because, uh, unless we do at some point, but, um, and it did a thing for me. I read it right after Middlemarch and did a thing for me that I didn't know uh, was capable anymore in books, which is it scared the living fuck out of Ooh. me. Oh, cool. What book? And what it, it was uh, Stephen Graham Jones, The Only Good Indians. Um, absolutely scared the living fuck out of me. Oh, that's awesome. And there was a, a point, I was reading it at night in bed, and so Stephen and I are friends. We're good friends, and we're colleagues. He works uh, with me at UC Riverside. I know this man well. And... Uh, there was a point in time I was reading the book where I had to have the conversation with myself that said, this is a font. This is a font. <laughs> this is not really happening. That Stephen Graham Jones, your friend, your friend <laughs> typed. Oh and it's an God. idea that Stephen typed into a book. It's not anything you need to worry about. And then I was like, fuck it. This book is uh, not staying in the room with me. <laughs> that's funny. I'm not surprised. Stephen was the one who made us read The Girl oh. Next Door. Yeah. A Jack Ketchum novel that yeah. fucked us all up. I'm still so mad at him for that. I'm so traumatized but, by that. But book. I gotta tell you, man, um, this book—it's so cool. So, see, I'm a huge Stephen Graham Jones fan as, as a human being, but also as a writer. This book—it's a horror novel in the way um, that Get Out was a horror movie. It's—it mm. is touching on so much larger issues of cultural identity. It's a—it's just an amazing piece of literature. And he's he's a writer like at the top of his power now, and it's so cool to see. Like when you read something and you're like, "Oh shit, this dude, like swung for the fucking fences, hit it over, ran around, caught the ball, and showed it to you." Like, hey, <laughs> that's <laughs> that, great. That's who I am now. But it, if you guys want to be scared, and I know it's hard to be like, "Oh yeah, I'm living sort of in a horrible, terrible, awful horror movie as it is." Do I want to be scared in bed? If you'd like to still feel scared in bed, 
The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. It's also got the greatest title and the greatest cover ever written. Hmm. Great. I'm okay. Excited. I might actually make that an audio an audio listen. Ooh, I bet that sounds really be scary. Ooh, I've been, I've been deep in J.K. Rowling land because I'm reading the Harry Potter books to my son. And on our camping trip, we finished the first book. And then we've now we're already like 150 pages into the next one. But then meanwhile, on Julia's suggestion, I started listening to the audiobook of Cuckoo's Calling. Yep. Oh, the crime novel, yeah. The crime novel that she wrote. Yeah, so I realized at one point, I was like, I am J.K. Rowling all the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I find I, I found, Cuckoo's Calling has, has not really kept me. I've like, dr- and mostly because I listen to audiobooks while I'm going to sleep. And usually that's fine. But this one, I just keep falling asleep and waking up and being like, uh, do I need to go back now? Nah, yeah, then just on. stop. <laughs> Then just yeah. yeah, I don't. I'm tapping out on that. But the Harry Potter is going great, guys. I, I have never read these books. <laughs> oh, and, uh, oh my god, fun. Yeah, well, well it's too bad them. she's but, transphobic. But You're really getting in yeah. in the wrong time. <laughs> I know. Well, that's why it's so weird to be reading her because yeah. they are that my my problem. You know, my problem. Like I ever, I remember when the Harry Potter books came out, and like. I was obviously like a little fantasy nerd. I remember because I was a teenager by the time they came out, and I remember being like too old for them. And but the the my take without having read them was like they're just they're so um, you know the fantasy elements are so der- derivative. Like everything is like wizards wear hats and ride broomsticks, which is where ride broomsticks. You know, I was always like this is just it's nothing new, um, and. Uh, you know, of course, I obviously am over that and realize like how creative and wonderful this this world is. But it is conservative in a lot of ways. Yes, um, yes, and yes. so in light of her, you know, sort of coming out as a sort of traditionalist about gender and really, for whatever reason, digging her heels in about that, um, it's been it's been fascinating to be reading the books and be like, oh, right, the bad guy has an evil thing hidden under his turban. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you the know, bankers and the, are Jews. The bankers are Jews. <laughs> and, it, and, and it's just like, you know, boys are boys, girls are girly. It's like, it, it's just very traditional in a lot of ways. And it's, it's, it are conservative in some weird, even though it's a fantasy, which is different than I think what the way I think of sci fi and fantasy is, is a chance to be uh, exploratory and, yeah. and a way to use those tropes to sort of push boundaries. And Harry Potter doesn't. So you know, Harry Potter uses those tropes to sort of tell a very conventional high school story about high school sports, high school popularity. You know, it's like it's it's very and, and I think that's why it's so appealing to right. kids is that it fits, you know, my five year old loves it because it's like this is what school is like. And, you know, but when, as, as an adult reading it, I'm like, I, I hope that this is like entry level fantasy for people. And then they go on to really, you know, have their minds blown by more less less conservative fantasy. Um so it's well written. It's really well written. I I I can't believe our uh medieval Japanese literature episode has an Easter egg of being our Harry Potter episode. Okay. <laughs> it's for the real fans. Uh, but I think um you know, something that I find more and more disturbing as I get older, and I've read them all several times. I really like them. They're just total popcorn. Um is the sorting into the four houses, the categorization, like that is mm. so, the more Weird. you think about it, the more like gross it is to me. I'm at, I'm at the point where if I hear somebody be like, oh, I'm a Gryffindor, I, it's just really grating because 
all it's saying is people can be sorted into four exact categories with exact characteristics. And I mean, people are going to come after us for this because there's <laughs> there's a lot of talk about this in the books. But just as a trope, it's both so appealing and, as you say, right, are so conservative. Um, yeah. And I... I will say, like, a lot of sci-fi is weird and pushes back, but a lot of fantasy doesn't. You know, a lot of yeah, fantasy I mean, is actually, like this. That's a good point. I'm sort of combining sci-fi and fantasy in my mind, which you maybe shouldn't. is unfair. Because the, yeah. the point yeah. of fantasy is often hearkening back to a sort of bygone era right. and yeah. what has been lost. Yeah. I mean, even, even, I don't know if you guys know about this, but even last week at the Hugo Awards, there was a big blow-up because essentially George R. R. Martin... You know, refused to pronounce people with foreign last foreign sounding last names correctly. Was going on and on and on about how Joseph Campbell is the most wonderful person on earth. Joseph Campbell was a you know, horrible fascist, um, <laughs> and you know all this cool. sort of like, like anti um, <sighs> you know twenty first century thinking was going on at the Hugo Awards, and it was a huge online dust up because the awards are being held online. Um, but when you think about it, like there's a pretty rich history in um, in sci-fi of arch conservatives writing mm. in the in the sci-fi realm, mm-hmm. um, and then and probably fantasy as well. But like a lot of a lot of those people, like some of the, the progenitors of the form, are coming from a very right wing point of view in the things that they're writing. So we need to do more episodes about this. Clearly, yeah. I mean, it, it dovetails perfectly with our uh, 11th century book of <laughs> Japanese poetry. Okay. Yeah, let's get some background here. Um, Kamo no Shomei, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. And if somebody George R. R. Martin me, has, a, has a fix for you. So uh, he was a successful poet and musician. He was a court poet, which was a position I guess he got paid for. Um, mm-hmm. But in his 50s, After witnessing a series of natural disasters and human suffering, he became a Buddhist monk and began to retreat further and further from society until he was living all alone in a 10-square hut in the mountains. And in uh, uh, 1212, he wrote the short essay, Hajoki, or An Account of My Hut, which uh, begins with detailing all the horrors that he had seen in human society and then um, sort of moves into reflecting on his life living alone in a hut. Uh, it's really short. Yes. And, yes. Um, really, um, I really enjoyed rereading this. I read this in college. Um, well, I don't know, I'll, I'll let you guys jump in on uh, any thoughts. Uh, it was good. Let's talk some more about the wizards. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I really... Um... I really, I loved it. I mean, to, you know, having someone talk about um, the value of stillness and the mm. essentials of life, and the essentials, uh, like what can be gleaned from being alone in nature during a time when a lot of us are alone in whatever sort of nature um, yeah. we have, is, was very compelling. I mean, we've talked about this previously, but I am so intimate now with the creatures that live around my house. Yeah. Like, yeah. deeply aware of it and aware of the sort of ecosystem that they're a part of, too. And reading this at that same time, um, you know, it sort of reminds me of the, you know, the sort of reasons why 
a lot of folks read the Bible, which is, you know, old solutions to new problems, right? Yes, uh, yes. No, Nothing that you are experiencing has not been experienced before. And, and to know that horrible disease and destruction and political tumult and all these things that eventually drove this guy up into the hills, the only thing that's different is he didn't have an iPad. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't have Zoom. He did, yeah, he didn't get to Zoom with his other poet friends like I get to. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but, you know, it looks a lot very similar, something like that. Rhymes. 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 Yeah. Rhymes. <laughs> wow, yours was nice, though, Todd. Yeah. So I, I, I really found it edifying and then also made me, you know, feel like, oh, I, I need to print some of these Buddhist cones out and... Totally. <laughs> it's strange that the most emotionally relevant thing that we've read is, you know, a, a thousand years old. Literally uh, a thousand years old. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, so what's today? August 5th. Um, you guys will hear this episode much later. But if you're on the East Coast, you know that this week a tropical storm just took out the power of people already trapped in their homes due to a pandemic. And it just feels like, and this is, you know, nothing compared to the suffering of people whose loved ones are actually dying. And it just feels like everything is stacked on, you know, everything in this year feels like, and now this, and now this thing, and Mm. now this thing, and now this thing. Um, And Australian wildfires and, all, oh God! All I, I forgot about the time Australia was on fire. That was this year, right. my friend. That was January. <laughs> was it January when all of Australia was on fire? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So, so the opening to this, and I mention all those things because that's what the first third of this is. It's like, and then mm. there was a fire, and and then there was this political upheaval, and then there was a tornado. Oh, and then there was a flood, too. And I feel like if I had read this at any other point in my life, I would not have connected with that relentless <laughs> feeling. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. that's us right now. That's us. <laughs> um, which is ridiculous because we're living in, like, absolute cushy land but it is emotionally this feeling that we're all together in this series of disasters mm-hmm. um and in that sense yeah i really liked it um yeah i i was also thinking about it just yesterday so listeners uh, as julia said today's august 5th when we're recording it but yesterday was that gigantic explosion in beirut yeah um and i was reminded of this passage of from Hajoki because we we're going to, I knew that we'd be talking about it, about this huge wind that swept through. So it was probably a typhoon mm-hmm. uh, that had swept through this town. But I was thinking about it in terms of the explosion because it's thatch and shingles dance wildly in the wind like winter leaves. Dust rose like smoke so nothing could be seen. The din so intense no human voice could be heard. The very winds of hell must be this loud. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. That, that's, that's like 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate going off. That sounds about, that sounds accurate. And I think the thing that in the poem opens with this amazing image. Well, it starts with an image that we've all heard, I think, a million times. Mm-hmm. Or at least right. it's a lyric in Pocahontas, which is 
a river keeps going and but the water changes but the river is the same um but then it develops into the second half of the thought that i've never really thought about which is that towns and cities are the same they they stay there they stay the same kind of place but the structures and the people change mm-hmm. over just as like water moves down a river and first of all i love that and second of all it really brings the perspective that I think we all need now, which is, yes, these disasters are going to happen. They've always been happening. You know, we feel special because we can complain about it super loudly now. Um, but this is just always how it is. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a and there, the, dark but very important um, <laughs> point of view we all need to have. There's the political angle, which is that all these terrible things happen in the city, which at the time was the capital. Yeah. And so they dest- the city is destroyed, and so they move the capital somewhere else. And then that capital is destroyed. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter if your seat of power is there. Nature doesn't give a shit. Nature yeah. doesn't know. Um, and, I mean, it's one of those things that in this time in our lives – where, you know, one state has one rule about this virus that we're all living through, and another state has a, another rule, as though the virus is looking at the map and saying, well, I won't infect Kentucky because they're going to go outside. Like, mm-hmm. You know, na- nature doesn't give a shit. Reality has a great way of, of changing your notions about the power of man. Yeah. But I do like the way that he quickly moves from from the natural disasters into the sort of human corruption Mm -hmm. and, and inequalities. Um, There's this, you know, after he's talked about the fires and the plagues and the earthquakes and the winds (laughs) and all of that, he he has this, this section where he talks about the social aspects. He says, the powerful are greedy. Those who stand alone are always mocked. Mm -hmm. Men of means have much to fear. Those with none know only bitterness. If you entrust yourself to the care of others, you will be owned by them. If you care for others, you will be enslaved by your own solicitude. If you conform to the world, it will bind you hand and foot. If you do not, then, or if you do not, then it will think you mad. And so the question, where should we live and how? Where to find a place to rest a while and how bring even short-lived peace to our hearts? Oh, yeah. yeah. Pick your fucking out, poison, man. dude. Do you want to be an outcast or do you want to have existential misery? <laughs> it's just (laughs) pretty spot on yeah Yeah, so um uh, the 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 reason that this book that that i suggested we read this is that i found myself um you know i was um, on the road camping for a month and one of the stops that we made was i have a friend named toby who um left los angeles last year he was a successful director and editor but was just kind of like screw it i'm getting out and he moved up to Portland. He opened up a store um, called Cult, which is an amazing store that is now closed, of course, during the pandemic, but will be open. But they had opened, I think, like two months before quarantine. Oh, my God. Uh, but it, in the meantime, he he decided while he moved up there, he bought 50 acres of just land uh, in Washington State, like only about an hour outside of Portland. And it's just... 50 acres of woods with a creek and it's it's on the Columbia River Gorge and it's amazing. Oh, it's and, he, and it was just this raw yeah. land. He was like, I don't know. I just want this. And I helped him find it and we scouted it together and stuff. So uh, ever since his store has been closed, he decided to just go live out on the property. 
So we drove all the way up there and ended up camping out on the property with him where he's been building himself a hut. And he's like chopping down trees. He's got an ax. He's, you know, he's built himself like a place to store his wood. He's flattening out it. And he's just taking his time and like living. And so we were sitting around the campfire one night and I was like, oh, you have to read this, this book that I read in college. It's, and I couldn't remember that much about it. I just knew it was called An Account of My Hut. And I knew his name, Shomei, but I was like, I haven't read that since you know, undergrad. Um, and, I, and I just kept thinking about it. So I bought him a copy and I bought myself a copy. And yeah, rereading it, I couldn't believe how um, uh, just appropriate it was for what we're all going through, you know, because it's like this idea of, you know, one, the experience in nature, which is obviously like an important component but also it's limiting your house to the size of 10 feet 10 feet by 10 feet and limiting what you want or or, or need um to to what can be within your own means um which right. i just feel like we all are relating to and it's um i don't know i mean yeah in some ways it's super inspiring because of course you can imagine what something like this would be like if we didn't have zoom let alone you know electricity or um Instacart. Any, Instacart. <laughs> right. If we had to catch our own food in the mountains while we were uh, going through this this sense of isolation or, yeah. you know, just the, the, the real isolation that he is seeking by actively avoiding other people, um, which well, is know, something, you know, I've noticed among friends, too. Like I have friends right. who are not in touch very well right now because yeah. they've retreated to their family unit and they're mm-hmm. just kind of like, nope, you know, and. And we've talked about, I've talked about on the show how I don't like the Zoom catch up, like having drinks. I like, if I'm going to talk to people, I want to talk to them on the phone or just not see them. Um, right. So I feel like we're all sort of adjusting our social habits right now in the face of the trauma that we're all experiencing. And, and um, I don't know. So I, yeah, I, I love this book and rereading it made me think it's even more important than I than I remembered. Um, I, I would argue that instead of reading Walden, mm-hmm. this is what we should be reading. Exactly. Like, because Walden is a, it, I mean, it's really a false narrative to be, you know, yes. to be perfectly clear. Plus he's Bit, so bitter. Because he he's hates so bitter. people so much. And he's, it's not that isolated. Right. <laughs> Whereas this, it's a man who has looked upon society and he has said, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go live this great life of my own, of, of thought and intellectualism in the woods and be self-sufficient. And he does it. Um, and he doesn't do it just to write about it, which I think is the other part about Walden that is a little okay. A little Let's okay. <laughs> All right. So for anyone who doesn't know, Henry David Thoreau did have his mom and sister deliver him lunch, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think that people get so caught up in Walden in the not creative nonfiction um, structure of it that you know the real idea of that book is undermined by this annoying thing we know but it, there's this right. same sense of observation and love of nature um that we should still respect so i will not tolerate too much walden trashing on here although you are <laughs> right um hey look thoreau was a fuck boy that's all i'm saying <laughs> and you know what <laughs> um Anyway, uh, this <laughs> I feel like I feel like I, I mean, look, you know, Thoreau is as my understanding of Thoreau and is like he was much more antisocial, sort of uh. fundamentally, and 
And also, you know, like like Todd said, you know, explicitly went to Walden sort of seeking seeking that encounter to be able to write about it and right. to sort of see if he could do it. Whereas with with this account of my hut, you get such a more sense of like the the emotional turmoil and the feeling of of lack of control mm-hmm. and and an overwhelming sense of suffering uh led Chomet to seek retreat to just alleviate those things and and to try and come to terms with them while he still loves humanity and still feels emotionally connected to people um that he he's hoping to sort of seek some wisdom out there um and then you know you it really does feel like the pen to page is less a like let me tell you what i've learned and much more like i'm going to just write down sentences that i own like only sentences that i know to be true Right. And I'm only going to write down something if it works. And, and it's, and I, and that's, what's so cool about this book is it reminds me of like, you know, it's not, it's technically, I guess it's an essay, but it, the way it's broken up on the page and our translation is like a poem. And it does feel very much like poetry in that in like the best poetry where it's like, yeah, there's just wisdom, you know, it's just like, uh, I am going to write down something that I know to be true. And right. you can take it or leave it, but it is what I've experienced is true. And there's that tone throughout this whole book that you, it is really undeniable. And a lot of the book ends up being less, uh, here's what I know, and more to be, here's what I've seen. Here's how it makes me feel. Here's mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, and then here are the questions I'm asking. And that seems really essential. It's like the book kind of, the, it's more of a, like a, a ritual reading the book reading Chomet is more like a ritualistic uh meditative experience of of totally of, of going through the same questions that that he was putting his himself through through this experience and like that just feels so good like it just makes me want to read it every day you know or like like you said Todd like put, so, you know take out the little koans and post them on the wall right. I think everything you say is right and makes sense but I do think we especially as westerners who are seriously in a state of societal suffering right now we have to be careful not to idolize this kind of behavior and this style of writing because first of all i saw it fly by somewhere in the notes or the introduction that part of the reason he did this was he was disinherited so it's not like he was like oh i've suddenly found myself i'm gonna go off in the woods like he was cut off he was suffering he was forced in his own way to do this and, you know, he was out in the in the wilderness for 30 or more years, according to the essay. And this is a set of paragraphs that took us all 45 minutes to read. So there's maybe he's not making as assumptive or narratively, you know, strange statements as Thoreau would, but he's leaving a lot out by omission. He's choosing very specific things that have survived a thousand years. So I don't think we should say like, this is the answer. Like this feels really good to us right now, right? Like the answer is we all go retreat into the woods and give up all our attachments and material possessions and relationships and families, and then we'll finally be at peace. But, but I find yourself a 10-year-old boy to walk with. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I don't know about you guys, but I have been kind of waiting for a sense of inner peace to descend upon me while alone in my home. <laughs> and it really, is not present. I've been present. for 49 fucking years. <laughs> I know. But didn't you think, in all seriousness, didn't you think, like, 
in sort of a smug Instagram mommy way. I'll put it like this is good. This is everything will become simpler and I will be happier. You know what I mean? No. Right. You never but to, at least cross your fingers that that would happen? No, because I'm pretty happy. I mean, outside of like, you True. know, the external things in the world. But also because I'm, you know, a social creature. Yeah. Having, you know, having that aspect of my life disappear. Well, I, I will say this. As a social creature, you know, I have found that I do not miss, like, weekly standing in front of large crowds of people and talking and trying to sound smart. Sure. I don't miss that. <laughs> you did a lot of that, man. Yeah, I, like, that's that's, that's like, your job. Eighty percent of your job. Like eighty <laughs> percent like of my job. This um, is part of that. Yeah, <laughs> this, job. Like, this is fine. Um, but like, I'm not talking about the teaching. Like the teaching, I'm. I do, right, that, you're talking about happening. lecturing and uh, yeah, I'm talking about running school and, and, and yeah, yes, and like book being tours. sort of the yeah. public face of a university. Like, right. don't really miss standing up there talking to people, shaking hands. I really don't miss shaking hands. Um, so I have actually really found that um, the intellectual energy that I have that I would spend, and then the emotional energy that I would spend going out into the world, talking to people, doing all this stuff that it has returned to me in my creativity, that I have found myself far more creatively inclined and ready to go at any minute. Like I sit down to work and it's on um, than I normally am. So in that way, I am one with the the creator of the man living in the woods. Um, but I don't know if it's made, I, I don't think I had the expectation that I'd be happier because I knew that I would I would miss too many people that I see regularly, you know. Mm. That's the that's the larger thing. But I, I do have a very big television, so <laughs> that's been nice. <laughs> but I mean, I, that's, I don't know. But, I I I, uh, I got a little lost on 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 the Instagram mommy point that, I, that you were making, <laughs> but I I wasn't sure. But I think like for me, a fundamental like what we have to recognize about this book you know, as opposed to Walden, which I don't want to keep making that compare. I mean, they both are liter literature. They're similar. Of, like reclusion, right? Like we're yeah. gonna, right. I'm going to be a recluse. But I really do feel like, you know, Chomet is, is coming from a Buddhist beginning. And yeah. that that is, that sort of fundamentally states all life is suffering, right? Like that's yeah. like the number one tenet of Buddhism is that, and, and, and so there's there's less this sort of like, self-reliance self-helpy aspect that you feel that i do feel like was part of the project of of walden mm -hmm. which was like let me go show how much of an individual i can be and how much an individual can be an individual as like a sort of uh you know uh test or testament to the human spirit like that, that's coming from a very different place than like how can i reduce my suffering and see how that changes any of my feelings or my thoughts and to me the real point of this book is that he doesn't get there. Right. Like right. that, th those last couple pages are devastating because he's like, nope. Like I'm still attached to my hut. Yeah. Like there's no way to not be attached to something or someone or society. And you know, and again, you could even argue that writing it down is an attachment, right? Like that's because I'm sure there have been pl plenty of Buddhists who want to reduce suffering that become absolute, you know, silent monks on their retreat that never write anything down. Um, and I think. Chomet's sort of interrogation, his interrogation is is 
is uncomfortable because it's not it's not a perfect Buddhist text. It's not saying, um, and I found enlightenment and there I go. It's not a religious text in that sense where it's like, you know, and here I achieved it. The whole ending of this essay is really pretty much back to where it began. It's like, why am, you know, why did I do this? And what am I here yeah. for? I yeah, don't and also know. he, you know, he he's mournful. He misses things. There's a passage yeah. um, late in this or maybe two thirds through where he says, on quiet nights, I recall friends while looking at the moon through the window. I listen to the distant cries of monkeys and tears wet my sleeves. I don't think it's tears of, of joy. It's tears of, of absence. Also, the distant cries of monkeys would scare the shit out of me. <laughs> You're not ready. <laughs> like, I don't find that soothing. Oh, like, dude. Oh, we, we, we were in Costa Rica last year and we had monkeys in the trees like all around where we were staying and they were howler monkeys. Nope. <laughs> it's like the scariest sound in the world. Yeah. It's like somebody is dying in those trees over there and we have to save them. It's so terrifying. Uh, yeah, so, so that doesn't seem soothing to me. So he's not a perfect Buddhist, obviously. And I think that's why there's the human Well, he's connection. the perfect Buddhist, I think. You know, of a certain tradition. Like, right. And that's why when he references Vim Lakirti at the end, I was like, oh, right. And I went back and got my, my copy of Holy Teachings of Vim Lakirti because I had forgotten, like, what that was all about. And Vim Lakirti is like, you know, he's, he's a renowned Buddhist saint, uh, you know, bodhisattva figure at, who may or may not have actually existed. But the, 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 the book, The Holy Teachings, is all about him sort of going around interrogating all other Buddhists, like all the other bodhisattvas and being like, yeah, but if you really think that. And so it's interesting, like for Shomei to, 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 to attach himself to the Vim Lakirti tradition is to be like sort of the bad Buddhist. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like they're the people that, that, that question teachings that, and in doing so reinforce Buddhism and actually make it stronger. It's a really, and like, I love those kinds of figures and those kinds of um, writings, you know, it's, because, I mean, even reading the Holy Teaching of Vimlakirti, it's, it's, it's much more of a religious text. So it's all about achieving enlightenment. You have to, it's very repetitive. You get through those passages where it's like, you know, and on that, when he pronounced that, a hundred thousand, you know, bodhisattvas and gained enlightenment in the Buddha field and lotus flower. And it's just like, and it goes on for pages. And you're like, okay, <laughs> where, you know, where is the, uh, where, where's the, 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 the non-religious sort of uh, positive reinforcement I can get out of this text. Um, but it comes from this sort of like student encounter with these teachers questioning everything. And, you know, it is, it's, it's deconstruction. Like the idea of like, I'm going to, to take the Buddha, the Buddhist uh, tenets and, and, and question them and deconstruct them. And in doing so become a better Buddhist. Um, mm. And that's like, I really love that. That's, and I think that Shomei does that perfectly in this book. And I think to pull it back to our own moment, you know, I think what is the cause of all of our suffering now as Americans, let's just keep it in that scope, is too many attachments. <laughs> Everything that was habitual that you never had to think about. I mean, to me, this is one of the worst things about this whole experience. Like everything must be questioned. Every every interaction you have, everything you do is an ethical dilemma um, every day. And that's a result of us saying, well, like, I'm really attached. This this is an example that will irritate a lot of people. But I'm really attached to my Fourth of July barbecue and it's really important to me. So how do I decide whether or not to go or I'm really attached to my kid's school or I'm really attached to my kid's teacher 
or I'm for me. So one of mine is I'm really attached to my grandma who's 95 and has been alone this whole time. So we have to reconcile all of these things in a way we never had to think about before. And most of them will never return to how they were before, which is just like a massive explosion of existential questioning and suffering for everyone. So I agree with you, Ryder, this this mode of we should question everything. That is the process by which you become more mindful or more able to survive another year. Um, It's a good point. Don't say it. Don't say it. (laughs) Don't say another year. I won't say. Here's what I'll say. Okay. Can you guys, uh, you probably can't still see me because I'm moving to a note on my phone. But I I took a picture of this page. (laughs) In this way, the year struggled. This is great radio, by the way. (laughs) In this, (laughs) shut up. In this way, the year struggled to its close. There was hope things might improve the following year. But then, on top of all, a great plague broke out, stood the world upon its head. Everyone was starving. Time passed, and things grew worse. People seemed like fish in a shrinking pool. And that's about the point where I said, thanks a lot, Ryder. (laughs) (laughs) But, no, I mean, that's exactly right, because I know, I know that when I read this in college, it felt all abstract exactly you know right I mean? like all yes. the considerations when i'm reading this in my buddhism class or even worse i think it was like an east asian you know survey class of east asian literature it's like just one of these many texts that explores ideas and like it I, I, this one i did like i remember but it all was a sort of intellectual exercise it was like the equivalent to reading plato or any ph- philosophical sort of tradition that at the time just felt like oh these are abstract ethical ideas to think about and instead, now it feels so essential. It feels yeah. more essential than than reading a book about how to do my own plumbing or you know any like I, literally I can't <laughs> think of anything more sort of uh, practical right now than reading these kinds of books because yeah. this is what gives me comfort. This is what I sit on my porch and I like I tear through this and I immediately want to read it again. And it's like this. Uh, you know, like I said earlier in this episode, making time to read, like if I can make time to read and read great poems or great essays like this, I mean, that is, it's actually become practical. It's, it's, and it's not just like a yes. mental health thing. It's like an ethical thing. It's a, it's a life functioning thing. Um, and I just think it's really, really, really important. And I, I was amazed how like all those disasters that he describes in the beginning, which I probably skipped over. I was probably like, yeah, yeah, I got it. You know, when I was fired. Now, I was like, yep, that could happen. That did happen. That is happening. That will happen. Ugh. And just being older, too. You know, I'm 40 years old now. When I was reading this at 21, it's probably like, oh, yeah, I could totally be fine in a hut by myself. Now I'm like... What would what would it be like living in a hut? Is that what I really want? Is that mm-hmm. how could would I, you know, my would I feel sister better? bring me food? Would I miss everybody? Do I have <laughs> a sister? <laughs> uh, oh, hey, but the most important thing that this episode has revealed, and I think listeners we'll we'll discuss it more as we go. Wow, inexplicable Julia Pastel Thoreau apologist, ladies and gentlemen. We'll discuss. She's this been again. a big fan. She's, she's, been a, she's I been love a, all wow. the transcendentalists. 
We Look, should do I'm a whole saying. episode on I that. I like all transcendentalists except Thoreau. Yeah. Wow. Uh, gauntlet throne. I'm just saying, listeners, if you weren't expecting this episode to, to be the, the rowling wake up of Ryder Strong <laughs> and the Thoreau apologist of Julia Pistel, well, you have another thing coming. <laughs> wow. Controversial as always. We'll leave it, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>